I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yes, yes. And this week, death is coming for the Archbishop. I think it was Colonel Mustard <laughs> in the library with the candlestick. Absolutely. What do you think? I th- I'm positive. I'm positive. But that okay. priest in Taos, though, is <laughs> I suspect him. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Father Martinez, was that yes, his name? Yes, that's his name. That's right. Father yep. Martinez, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Death Comes for the Archbishop, despite its title, is not a mystery. Um, this is a <laughs> book written by Willa Cather in 1927. And it is about the establishment and um, care of a diocese in the New Mexico Territory in the 1800s. When it would, when it first became part of the United States, I know. And you think about a diocese, and I mean, my word, that's a huge diocese. And later, Colorado gets added to it. Yeah, it's like because I don't have any people, says <laughs> the old Archbishop who writes to our Archbishop. It's like so you got to send someone to these mining camps. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. Now that we're just saying that, Cather is. So good at contrasting and comparing and providing doubles for us to look at. She does it with the different priests we see, with the different kinds of people of all sorts that we we see because it's in such an early time in our country's history. We see, you know, the native population. We see the Hispanic, the Mexicans. Um, we see the um, very few Americans, but when we see all of them, there's good and there's bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the New Mexico Territory when the archbishop, who's a bishop then, is first sent, he and his friend. And it is full of the natives, the native population, I guess you would say, uh, the Mexicans, as I said, mostly that, and a bunch of Protestants who don't care about the bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a real different population than later at the end of the book when Father Vaillant is sent to the mining camps in Colorado where Mm. those people Mm. need faith and the church just as much as the other people, but it's in a really different way. So she's showing the, the ways that the church and these people really make a difference. Um, Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about that up till now. Yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like you know what you said about the doubles. You know, they're all over in this book, and and one of the doubles that you're talking about is how you pronounce it, Vaillant. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's French. Yeah, how Vaillant was at the beginning of the book. He'd just leave, you know, get on a, a mule or something, and then go do his thing. But then um, when he was going to go to that Colorado mining thing, he had to take everything with him. Yes, and and you know just it's just exactly what you said, but he he had to actually gather stuff and get a wagon and and take what he needed with him, and that's not how it was when he started. When he started, it was just get on a horse and go. Right, and he could stay with the native population. I say native in this sense, and the people who are just living there. So, well, it's episodic. It's and I've seen people and heard people saying it's not really plot driven. But there is a plot. The plot is the bishop's life, and to a lesser extent, Father Vaillant's life, Mm -hmm. as they together 
minister to and serve the people in this um, diocese? And how do they struggle against all the challenges that they're given? And how do they themselves still grow in holiness? Mm. And so it's a really interesting view of our country at this early, early time. Yeah. Before the Civil War is when they get there. Mm -hmm. So um, the 1830s, maybe. Mm -hmm. And that's most of the country is just a wilderness. And I was struck by the fact that when there's a missionary bishop or priest who goes to Rome, and that's how the book starts. There's a prologue in Rome, which is so civilized and so settled. Another double, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so this priest is saying, we've got to have a bishop for this territory. I've got just the right guy, but you guys have got to assign him. You've got to think it's important. And he points out that 300 years before that, the Spanish priests would come up from through Mexico because that was all part of Mexico then. Mm-hmm. And they set up the missions. They taught everybody the faith, the people they brought with them who were Hispanic knew the faith. And they were like, but they've since died out and conditions have changed. And here's here are these people clinging to their faith, but no catechesis, no teaching, and very little access to the sacraments, but they're still hanging on. Mm-hmm. We have to help them. <laughs> and when they, many times when they show up in these towns, the people are flocking to them. We want our children baptized. We haven't had marriages in so long. Because they're waiting for the priests, the priests are who do this. They know that much of their faith. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see the church viewed that way just with this hunger from a lot of the people that they encounter. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's a very uncivilized part of the country. And so, when you said another double, I was thinking, I wanted to read, if you don't mind, two paragraphs. Please do. Mm -hmm. One is from Rome, and one is from the New World. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So, um, this is in Rome, it says... It was early when the Spanish cardinal and his guests sat down to dinner. The sun was still good for an hour of supreme splendor, and across the shining folds of the country, the low profile of the city barely fretted the skyline, indistinct except for the dome of St. Peter's, bluish-gray like the flattened top of a great balloon, just a flash of copper light on its soft metallic surface. The cardinal had an eccentric preference for beginning his dinner at this time in the late afternoon when the vehemence of the sun suggested motion. The light was full of action and had a peculiar quality of climax, of splendid finish. It was both intense and soft, with a ruddiness as of much multiplied candlelight, an aura of red in its flames. It bored into the ilex trees, illuminating their mahogany trunks and blurring their dark foliage. It warmed the bright green of the orange trees and the rose of the oleander blooms to gold, sent congested spiral patterns quivering over the damask and plate and crystal. The churchmen kept the rectangular clerical caps on their heads to protect them from the sun. The three cardinals wore black cassocks with crimson pipings and crimson buttons, the bishop a long black coat over his violet vest. And then we have the contrast, which struck me when I was reading it, which is in um, a town 
that the bishop has been to where he has been um, giving the sacraments and seeing how the people live. And it says, The bishop sat a long time by the spring while the declining sun poured its beautifying light over those low rose-tinted houses and bright gardens. The old grandfather had shown him arrowheads and corroded metals and a sword hilt, evidently Spanish, that he had found in the earth near the waterhead. This spot had been a refuge for humanity long before these Mexicans had come upon it. It was older than history, like those wellheads in his own country, where the Roman settlers had set up the image of a river goddess, and later the Christian priests had planted a cross. This settlement was his bishopric in miniature, hundreds of square miles of thirsty desert, then a spring, a village, old men trying to remember their catechism to teach their grandchildren. The faith planted by the Spanish friars and watered with their blood was not dead. It awaited only the toil of the husbandman. It, he hmm. was not troubled about the revolt in Santa Fe or the powerful old native priest who led it, Father Martinez of Taos, who had ridden over from his parish expressly to receive the new vicar and to drive him away. He was rather terrifying, that old priest with his big head, violent Spanish face, and shoulders like a buffalo. But the days of his tyranny, the day of his tyranny was almost over. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's a real contrast with, you know, here's this priest who's trying to drive him away. Mm-hmm. Here's these three uh, cardinals and a bishop yeah. in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. It, it really hit me that she was really making a vivid contrast between those two scenes. For sure, yeah. And then, you know, the St. Peter's and sitting on a balcony with Crystal mm-hmm. and eating uh, in contrast with the thirsty desert, <laughs> hundreds of people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Very, very deep contrast. Yeah, that their faith had been planted by the Spanish friars and watered by their blood. Mm-hmm. But it's fading, but it's still there. Yeah. They can still revive it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two extremes of uh, human existence. <laughs> and um, yeah, lots of souls. Mm-hmm. And the church is there for all of it. Yeah, and still is, you know. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's that's really great. Um and it it reminded me of, you know, uh, the, these Frenchmen coming from there, you know, Vaillant and Latour, right? Latour is the mm-hmm. bishop. And <clears throat> it, as you were reading that, it, it, the bridge, a uh, uh, part of a bridge between Rome and there was in food in the in the in the book, because oh, yeah. I remember like Latour, at first he was like, don't put any chili in that you know i have tried it and i don't like it very much but as he goes through life he uh gets to a point where he does like it Mm -hmm. and he you know he he says something like you know please just you know do uh do it like you normally do it (laughs) you know what i mean um but but it's uh but i think that that's interesting you know so you take someone from from france in this case you know the which is much closer to rome than new mexico is and then you put that person in New Mexico and eventually he becomes part of New Mexico. Yeah. And of course, don't forget he'd been in, both those priests had been in Ohio first. Mm, right. Which at that point was still pioneer country, but more a little more civilized. Sure. 
and then they so that's their acclimatization that's how you say the word and then they're sent to New Mexico where they have to oh my gosh the things they have to do <laughs> you know where the old uh, the bishop of from Mexico City I think it was before this was part of the US mm. New Mexico was part of the US, US this territory was under his jurisdiction and because it's what, 400 miles away or something he doesn't want to give it up yeah. So he's just not acknowledging it or telling any of the priests in the territory. So the bishop has to get on a mule and go down there himself and do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Yeah, all of that travel. And, um, you know, early on he's like, you know, I just want to spend time in my diocese. And right. he's got to go to a meeting at the Vatican or... He's got yeah, to go. He went to Vatican One. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, he's got to do all this stuff, and and everything that he does, you know, if they if they call a meeting in somewhere on the East Coast, I can't remember, but he has to get to Cincinnati to get on the train to get over there. But it's it's months, you know. So he's like, you know, oh, six months I was traveling this year or something like right. that. Right. You know, that's just right. amazing. Well, and thinking of doubles and everything, also. It's funny, it's a great thing because Father Vaillant and Bishop Latour are really good friends. Yeah. Partly because they started off as friends from back in France, from going to school together. Mm -hmm. And partly because this friendship is continued, uh, continually forged anew by their struggles on the frontier to do what they're supposed to do. And each one of them is complementary to the other. So, they are. Yep. yeah, the bishop is more intellectual. He's a little, um, you know, he, he is kind of a little more standoffish and fastidious mm. and all this stuff. And that's kind of, you need the intellectual part, but he knows he also needs the other part. And Father Vaillant is not really intellectual, but he's got the heart. I mean, he just throws himself into everything and he often will complain about it. Oh, you took me from Sandusky, Ohio, where I just <laughs> loved it. Mm -hmm. But then later, when he has to go to Colorado, he's going, now you're taking me from my people <laughs> who are in the, you know, the deserts. I love them. Right. Kind of thing. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in looking into the background of this just a little bit, um, I, I, I don't I don't know a ton, but um, it, it looks like that the novel was based on at least one real person. Who oh, was yeah. Name we should have said. There yeah, were who's, two. Two real people. There are two real people. Okay. Uh -huh. So uh, Archbishop Lamy, L-L-A-M-Y. Lamy. Lamy, okay. Since he was French. Yeah. So And then Jean-Baptiste. Um, Anton Docher, um, who's the padre of Isleta. Um, I'm just looking at a Wikipedia entry here. That's where I got that name. But Joseph... Mashbuf, I thought, was okay. Father Vaillant. Could be, could be, yeah. If you look at the if you look at the page for the book, Death Comes for the Archbishop. Uh-huh. That's what I'm looking at. I think at. it says. Okay, very good. But the but the idea is um Willa Cather changed those names, you know, probably because she wasn't gonna be it was like yeah. just loosely based on, right? Right. And um the names that she chose were uh, Latour and Vaillant. And Latour is Tower, and uh, yeah. Vaillant is Valiant, right? So no, isn't that great? I think it's great, yeah, and it and it fits their characters perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, and and later on we'll talk about that more. But I think I think that's um, one of the key aspects of this book is the friendship between those two. Oh yeah, I think as much as the story of the archbishop's life um, and how do you serve others and how do you grow in faith is is the underlying theme for both these priests. Mm. Um, it is the story of their friendship because. Um, well, just to skip way ahead, what is why is the book called what it is? Well, that is a question that I had for you because I think oh. it's a very interesting choice for a title. Um, because you know we we joked about it at the beginning, but I I thought I was expecting a mystery. I was expecting an archbishop to be murdered, and there would be a mystery. You know, so um, the death comes for the archbishop. Um, yeah. Interesting choice for a title. That, well, that, that that's the focus of, uh, of the title. Well, and the interesting thing is several times in the book, either or both of the priests might be in danger. Mm-hmm. For example, when they, they stop during a storm to um, ask for hospitality, and when the husband's gone, the wife warns them, get out, he'll kill you. Yeah. yeah. Because this is how wild the wilderness is right now. Mm-hmm. But... Um, it occurred to me because I was puzzling over it at the very end, the archbishop is very old. Father Vaillant has already died and everybody's taking care of him because these are his last days. Um, and they're talking about, well, I don't want you to catch a cold. You die of it. And he mm-hmm. says, I won't die of getting a cold. I shall die of having lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And terrific I, and I thought mm-hmm. this is how death comes for you. Death comes for all of us all the time. We're getting closer. How long do we last? That's in God's hands. We don't know. Yeah, right. But for him, he dies of having lived, and look at the life he had. Hmm. And so then when he is um, dying, and this is the part that made me cry Hmm. when I was reading it, and um, he is dying... His he's talking, but they can't understand what he says. And um, Bernard, he's talking in French a little bit. And the servant is a oh, servant. It's his friend, really, is saying, "What is it, Father? I'm here." He continued to murmur, to move his hands a little. And Magdalena thought he was trying to ask for something or to tell them something, but in reality, the bishop was not there at all. He was standing in a tip-tilted green field among his native mountains, and he was trying to give consolation to a young man who was being torn in two before his eyes by the desire to go and the necessity to stay. He was trying to forge a new will in that devout and exhausted priest, and the time was short, for the diligence for Paris was already rumbling down the mountain gorge. (laughs) And, of course, that's his memory of when Father Vaillant had promised his father he wouldn't go, but he was he was being pulled towards going on this uh, mission together. Yeah. And going to school, mm-hmm. joining the seminary is what it was. And uh, Bishop Latour, as a boy then, encourages him to go with him. And, it, of course, what we're, rem- we're supposed to be remembering is they do this journey together. 
They're together the whole time. It's their friendship that makes it possible, even though they don't see each other for months at a time sometimes because one is out in the desert and the other is, you know, stuck doing whatever. Um, And that's how God takes them through it. And he dies of having lived. And then his next journey, Father Vaillant has gone ahead of him. (laughs) And he's going to join him. Right. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah, so and in, it's such in, a tribute to friendship. It absolutely is, yeah. And um, so I guess death comes for the archbishop is really a title referring to his life. I think so. Yeah. It becomes apparent only after you read the book. Just a very interesting choice for the title. And as I was mentioning before, it's, you know, an episodic type of story. And sometimes it will move back and forth depending on what somebody's remembering. Mm. Or yeah. the old history, or they'll say, "Oh, gosh, there's mm. a few peach trees left." But long ago, there was an old <laughs> priest who came up here, and here's yeah. what he did: right. he lived like a king, and here's mm. what happened to him. And so, in that way, it kind of reminds me of the way Rumor Godden will write sometimes. For example, there was a lesser way she did that in when we read in this house of breed, and I don't mm. know if that occurs to you when you think of the story. But people will go back and forth in their memories, and she'll just keep telling the story. And she does that a lot. She'll play with time. There's a book called China Court that really does it quite aggressively. And it makes it a fascinating story. But Mm -hmm. here, of course, she's building layers and layers so that we can understand what's going on below the surface, I think. Yeah, yeah. And... The writing is superb, by the way. Um, I thought it just pulled me right along, and it was terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and this this episodic uh, way of of telling the story, um, you know, just each little section is just a different time in the life, you know, and and what's happening, you know. So it starts with well, the prologues in Rome, and then the next one is uh, you know them traveling uh, across the country to the diocese. Or what will become the diocese, right? And then, um, then it just kind of moves through their lives doing that, and they're very much a team throughout. And then, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to call them short stories. I would call them vignettes or little mm-hmm. scenes, you know. Um, but man, it, it was just terrific. I, I just loved it. You know, a lot of them just really stand out in my mind when I'm thinking about them. And one was that story that you you alluded to, where they stopped overnight at a at someone's house, and the wife sort of uh, at a moment just stole a glance at them, and you know mouthed or somehow mimed, "You guys are uh, in big trouble here. You need to get out of here." Yeah, he'll and kill you. Yeah. Kill you. So um, yeah, it, it, it's like you know the old west is going on around them. Because it's it's a lawless land, you know. It's it's oh, yeah. very very wild, and um, you know, this guy, you know, that's kind of what he did. He's like, you know, I kind of like to take out the travelers. So, <laughs> but uh, but luckily, uh, Magdalena was her name. Pretty yeah. cool. Pretty cool as well. Oh and, yeah. And um, yeah, and then she ended up being part of the story from then on as well. Right. She then later sneaks out and gets away, and um, they find some people to help take care of her for a while. And then a convent gets started, and she becomes one of the sisters there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because those vignettes also are, 
is it almost like um, pearls on a necklace or something? Mm. Because they all hold together to make a whole. Yeah. Things will yeah. be used from them that will go back and forth. And mm-hmm. I also really liked that occasionally somebody real would pop in. Yeah, that was interesting. It, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't exactly historical fiction, but it was historical fiction <laughs> in the sense that this is rooted in real time and real experience and not just the archbishop and his friend, but like Kit Carson shows up at one point. <laughs> yeah. And instead of talking about his daring do and his deeds as a scout and all that kind of stuff, they talk about his the fact that he's married to a native woman as a wife or maybe Hispanic, Mexican Mm -hmm. woman as a wife. But, you know, the fact that he embraces the local culture and then the fact that he becomes friends with the bishop and says, you know, I never thought there was anything to this Catholicism. I converted for form. Mm -hmm. But then when I was being taken care of when I was really sick one time by these friars, I realized there was more to it. Mm. And so everything gets a little bit more depth yeah. than it would usually get because you've got it rooted in real people and these real people's experience. Mm-hmm. But the whole story seems to me to be to talk about both the friendship, but mostly the faith, yep. which is extraordinary for somebody who wasn't Catholic. Yeah. You told me she wasn't Catholic and yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't have guessed that she seemed, she seemed to know what she was doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there seemed to have been a depth of knowledge of Catholicism here. Oh, yeah. She seemed to have, she must have had a good advisor mm-hmm. or something, or just right. known people who lived the faith well, because it's because there are bad Catholics and good Catholics in this. The ones mm. we're following are good, but even they aren't perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there will be times when you'll look at it and go, oh, this is the business of being a bishop rather than following what maybe the more pure heart would want to follow. So mm. somebody like Father Martinez who has been set up in Taos as um, a very revered priest there for a long time before the bishop ever came. and But he is living a very sensual life. It's all about he's got um, children. Mm-hmm. He's got uh, the fine life and food and wine, and he everything's comfortable around him. And he's busy defending the idea that um, priests in this country shouldn't be celibate. Those are the old rules, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and he's not a good person. It's not just yeah. that he's let himself slide. Mm-hmm. He is a bad person, right? In he many even, ways. He even said that you know, hey, if you try to replace me, I'll just start a new church. Right. Yep. Well, and there's that story about the young girl who'd been in captivity so long. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that with him and her virginity had been somehow, as the story went, miraculously preserved. Nobody had bothered her. And then she gets rescued and turned over to them and he, you know, deflowers her, essentially. Right. I mean, he's he's in it for himself. And um and of course then he's set up in his story is set up in juxtaposition to another bad priest, who is um Father Lucero. Mm-hmm who is an avid miser. He's one of the ones who would, he would starve himself in order to save money. He, he He's the one who, yes, um, okay. yeah, when he died, um, he had, he had confessed, he had done a last confession, all this stuff, but he clearly hadn't repented. <laughs> he's, he's dying and he's starting up worrying about thieves coming to take his stuff. Right. After he dies, they discover this cache of, 
uh, riches under his bed that he'd never confessed about. Yeah, and I, I loved, um, I mean, that this guy's on his deathbed and he's worried about this money oh. that's under the thing, you know, and... Um, the priest was it uh, was it Latour or Valiant? He said, "You've got to stop thinking about that because I can't finish this, um, you know, anointing of the sick or the the last rites, however it was put in this book." He right. says, "I can't, I can't do this with you in this state of mind." And then yeah. um, the the guy laid back and um, stopped talking about it. He says, "Yeah, clearly you're not thinking the thoughts you need to be thinking here." Yeah, he says. Um Unless you compose yourself, Father Lucero, and fix your thoughts upon heaven. It was Father Vaillant. Okay. Um, I shall refuse to administer the sacrament. That's In your it, present man. state of mind, it would be a sacrilege. Right. And then he calms down and everything. Um, but they say that he was dying and the people stayed because they viewed the moment when you died as like, you know, a door opens and they'll see something they might mention mm. that you don't know anything about. So this is your chance to see what's on the other side. And um, what does he do? I mean, he is just an old devil, I think. Mm. He says um, he was – so he was actually dying. And he says, after a facial spasm that was like a sardonic smile and a clicking of the tongue in his mouth, their padre spoke like a horse for the last time. Mm. Comete tu cola, Martinez. Comete tu cola. Eat your tail, Martinez. Eat your tail. Almost at once, he died in a convulsion. <laughs> and so everybody afterwards thinks that Father Lucero looked into the other word, world and saw Father Martinez in torment. Mm. And I'm like, that to me just seems like the meanest thing in the world to do. <laughs> it's very mean-spirited. I don't think he was uh, seeing anything in the other world. I think he was being a huge jerk. Um, but... Uh, the thing I started to say was um, that when the bishop gets there and he sees how Father Martinez is living and all the the problems he's causing, and he says, well, you know, some of the stuff is good. The sacraments are being upheld very firmly in terms of how the Mass is celebrated and all this stuff. And he goes, true, it's probably because he likes the beauty of the form, but for whatever reason. He says, but I can't deal with that right now. I have to leave him in place, and I will manage him later. <laughs> and I know I was listening to something like the Close Reads podcast or something, where they talked about this book last year. Mm-hmm. And um, there were some commenters on the Facebook page that were like, oh, my gosh, see, this is the thing about the Catholic Church. <laughs> They're awful. They just let this keep going on. And not, I mean, I think there was just one person in particular was mm-hmm. like, and I was going, oh my gosh. I was like, you're right. Because, and it's not that the Catholic Church is the worst, but the problem is, is it's an administrative problem versus the spiritual problem. Mm. And we'd all like to dash in and always take care of the spiritual problem and let's solve it right now and let's do all this stuff right now. But sometimes things don't work out that way. Mm. You yeah, know? he needed to have a replacement. And you need to have prudence in how do you deal with the people. Yeah. I mean, if you just uh, rip a splint away from somebody's broken leg, they're not going to be able to walk. And at that point, that Padre was Padre Martinez was the splint that was kind of holding things together. And so those are the moments, though, when I would look at what was going on and go, oh, man, I, I don't like that either. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's looking at it 
which would be French also, very practically, very businesslike. But of course, that is how administration has to work. Um, so all that is to say, Father Vaillant seems to be more perfect than Bishop Latour. Each of them has their flaws. Each of yes, them has yes. things that you wish they would have dealt with differently. You wanted to see, in the case I was talking about, you wish Jesus was in there with, you know, whipping away the merchants from the temple, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. But even Jesus, I can't remember which gospel it was. Was it John? Even Jesus, when he, he doesn't do it the first time he sees it, he gets there, he goes in, and he looks around, and the next day he goes back and does it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I can't do everything at once. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Things things are in their own in their time, right? They, you know, it's like the goal is that it, when we get to the end, it's going to be what it needs to be, right? So you're mm-hmm. you're you're getting things moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but yeah, it's still no good. It's just that there was there were no resources. You can you you know, he didn't want to leave them uh without anybody but Mm -hmm. the the other thing was you know he was very good at the mass he when he was doing the mass it was spot on right he wasn't watered down it wasn't different it wasn't anything like that you know and the bishop saw him do mass he was there and that was part of his assessment too it's like well he's doing this perfectly correct so so that you know there was there was a lot there so yeah yeah but yeah, definitely not an ideal situation. No question. <laughs> so yeah, yep. And um, yeah, all that administrative stuff—that's something else. Um, yeah, another another moment that I thought was really big was um, probably later on in their life when Colorado was added, uh-huh. and um, so Latour. He recalls Vaillant from, I guess, the field. You know, Vaillant is traveling around, you know, and and like you said earlier, you know, every town he goes to, people want confessions and weddings and and all this stuff, and he's traveling around. But anyway, he gets called back to Santa Fe and um, arrives back, but he's like, I'm not sure why I'm back. And Uh and Latour had, had called him back really for his own... He just wanted him around, <laughs> you know. Missed I missed him. I missed this guy, right? Yeah. And uh, there was a deep friendship there. And then, um, the what the mining what would you call it? mining camps up in Colorado yeah. were opened, and there was a great need for someone to go there. And when Latour saw that, he was like, "Well, obviously." Vaillant is a guy who can do that and do it well. Right. And had to admit that um, I'm going to have to send him there. And, um, you know, he he, he's, he showed that to Vaillant. And, um, of course, Vaillant was immediately very excited by the idea. And um, at the same time, Latour, it was very clear that this was a tremendous sacrifice for him because – he was now giving up his friend really for the last time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very moving, I thought. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the point where the author points out that Father Vaillant had friends wherever he went. 
He was very open, warm-hearted, mm-hmm. um, very enthusiastic, and um, people liked him a lot. I mean, because he was the traveling priest. His people loved him. His people loved him so much that when he needs to raise money to help the people in Colorado, he goes back to these poor Mexican villages and wants to raise money, and they're all giving him stuff. <laughs> they're donating mattresses and blankets and money, and they're they're digging deep for this priest who they love who leads them mm-hmm. so he's got the gift of friendship and he realizes that bishop latour has so many other gifts but one of his things is he doesn't have tons of friends he's always held himself a little in reserve it's just kind of his nature mm-hmm. and <laughs> so he's the sacrifice he's making is to send father Vaillant. yeah who later becomes the bishop of colorado so latour is a tower Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a soul tower, right? Yeah, and Father Vaillant is valiant. He just goes charging in. Yeah. But both of them stay so grounded in their faith that I don't. Do we see them facing temptations other than these kind of temptations? You know, these are the things that if I have to give up my friend and send him up there, it's the right thing to do. I mean, we don't, they're not usually tempted by things like um, the other priests that we see who have problems. The, yeah, you know, they, don't, the power. they don't seem to be, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that's kind of shown to us when there's a Christmas day described, I think it's Christmas, when Father Vaillant makes them an, a French dish, and they speak in French, because they never mm. speak in French yeah. otherwise. They speak in Spanish to improve their Spanish or English to improve it. And so this is a moment when they're allowed to relax and reminisce and talk about all this stuff. But usually they're adapting themselves to everything around them. Mm. Um, I forgot what I started off to say about all of it. Yeah, you were talking about temptation, you know, if they had felt that. Oh, yeah. So the temptation, of course, would be to do this all the time. Mm teach everybody around them to cook the French flam or the dish or speak French to the people around them. They can all learn that too. But what they do is they adapt themselves to everything around them, the poor conditions, the eating the chilies, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned. And one of the things of this being um, not only an early missionary type story, but an early old West type story is that there's lots of suffering everywhere. Yeah. And these guys, they, you know, the bishop's uh, house is comfortable. It's comfortable in the native style, and it's described in some of the most beautiful writing. But one of the things that we see is they can enjoy the sensual pleasures like that Christmas dinner, but they don't elevate them above their proper place. So Martinez and Lucero do. Hmm. But these guys don't. And so they accept, as do most of the people around them, suffering as a way of life and a way of devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know how to suffer like that anymore. Right. I mean, I went to the dentist yesterday to get a tooth filled, <laughs> and I, I was the whole time, the, at the beginning, I was like, oh, no, relax, it's fine. Oh. It'll all be fine. You don't even feel the needle going into your gum anymore. Yeah. They numb that first. I remember when they started doing that, I was like, Oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> I soon got used to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we live such a life of comfort that we don't realize it. So our sufferings are so small, not always, but in regular life. And we feel as if they're a mountain. Hmm. Yeah. 
That's a that's an excellent point. Yeah, and and we definitely have different things going on. You know, uh, we we talked about the Book of Ecclesiastes in the previous <laughs> uh, one, and it's pretty clear. You know that uh, you know back then what nine hundred BC or or I mean there was a pretty wide range of where we think that might be written, but that. Um, those things that they the the people then were confronting in in their thoughts and in their suffering is the same as today. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? But it's just we're different, and maybe we're uh, inflating ours. You know, so it, it's like, um, you know, the, the richest person on earth is also suffering, and the poorest person on earth is also suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, some of it seems awful silly to the poor person. You know what I mean? But it's just very interesting to think about. I mean, it's a very complex thing. Um, Well, and it's mm -hmm. really, I guess, in our own lives and anywhere, anytime, it's what do you do with the suffering? How do you approach it? Yeah. Do you get angry at it and have a grudge against the world? Do you say this is how life is. I mean, that's, as I've said before, one of the things I value about Catholicism is it gives suffering meaning. You can join it with Christ's suffering on the cross. You can look at his example and, um, mm-hmm. and you can realize whatever you're suffering, he went through it too. Yeah. Yep. You know, amazing. But yeah, it, it is, it's, it's amazing to think, you know, at that time in the world, how much suffering there was, you know, we were talking about Kit Carson and I do like how later in the book, um, I don't know a ton about Kit Carson's life, but at the, at the, at the latter half of the book, Kit Carson was involved with something to do with the Navajo Indians. And Mm -hmm. he is, he is called misguided, (laughs) right? So he was a friend at the beginning, seemed like a terrific guy. Um, but in this book, whatever occurred there, he was involved with uh, some battle. Yeah, it says here, um, it was his own misguided friend, Kit Carson, who finally subdued the last unconquered remnant of that people who followed them into the depths of the Canyon de Chez, whither they had fled from their grazing plains and pine forests to make their last stand. Um, yeah. But um, so there's there was suffering everywhere. I mean... Um, all, all the, all people were suffering and the, the church's presence, uh, was needed, you know? So that, that's again, you know, like what you said, it, it helps us, um, put suffering in the right perspective. Um, and I'm just imagining, you know, a faithful person who only sees a priest, you know, rarely and, uh, to see father Vaillant come trotting into town on his mule or whatever would have been glorious, would have been just glorious, you know, especially because he was such a great man. Um, but, but he, you know, uh, so that's, you know, the relief of suffering and, um, that's fantastic. Well, and of course it's, it's emphasized for us by the fact that when we've seen, we see the bit in Rome and then we see skip ahead and see, um, Archbishop Latour, mm-hmm. and he's gotten lost, and he's in the desert. He's got mm-hmm. a horse and mule, and they all need water, and um, no sign of the road in sight. And he comes across the cruciform tree mm-hmm. that has grown as if it were a perfect cross. Mm-hmm. 
And so he then stops and reflects on Jesus's life and sufferings and kind of uses it as a devotional device in his own life. Yeah. But we look at it and we can also see here's wandering in the desert. Jesus mm-hmm. was driven into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tested. Um, after his baptism, he wa- this is the story of the, um, what, the uh, Israelites, before they were Israelites, after <laughs> Moses leading the people out of Egypt, and they spend 40 years wandering in the desert before they understand what's going on and get to the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these resonances with biblical precedents of suffering and enlightenment mm-hmm. and faith. Yeah. And that's what she launches the book with. Mm. You know, he finds the little village, he finds the stream and the village, and they say, oh my gosh, it's like God led you to us. We've been waiting. Mm. Our children haven't been baptized, all this kind of thing. So all this is coming together, and this is kind of, the episodes kind of flow from there. Terrific. And then we're, we're shown that extreme suffering of that poor woman my gosh, what's her name? Sat Seda. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, it, that's right. Was what was in my head. Oh, go ahead. I, I then, just like that's another uh, pearl, I guess. Right, <laughs> a yeah. pearl on this string. Um, but yeah, Seda was. Um, I'm looking at some text right here. She was a slave in an American family. They were Protestants, very hostile to the Roman Church, and they did not allow her to go to mass or receive visits of a priest. She was carefully watched at home, but in winter. When the heated rooms of the house were desirable to the family, she was put to sleep in the woodshed. Tonight, unable to sleep for the cold, she gathered courage for this heroic action. She had slipped out through the stable door and come running up an alleyway to the house of God to pray. And the bishop can see her doing this through his window. And she's trying to get into the church, but it's locked. And he puts on his cloak and stuff and runs down there and lets her in. And uh, I love this line. The church was utterly black except for the red spark of the sanctuary lamp before the high altar. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. God I mean, and, yeah, right. and it, it's just like um, that, that those kind of statements are make me surprised that Willa Cather is not Catholic, you know, yeah. um, because what, what an incredible, beautiful detail. But anyway, mm-hmm. he takes her into the um, church, and they pray, and it's an intensely religious experience for him, you know, to be doing this. Um, and he, um, at, uh, there's a paragraph here at the end, never, as he afterward told Father Vaillant, it had been permitted him to behold such deep experience of the holy joy of religion as on that pale December night. He was able to feel, kneeling beside her, the preciousness of the things of the altar to her who was without possessions. The tapers, the image of the Virgin, the figures of the saints, the cross that took away indignity from suffering and made pain and poverty a means of fellowship with Christ. Just awesome. Well, yeah, yeah, it's... It's beautiful. And he, you know, he gives her his cloak to wear while yep. they're in there. Mm-hmm. And he wants her to keep it. And she says, oh, no, this family will just take it right away from me. Mm-hmm. Because slavery is outlawed. Yeah. But they've hidden her because they want to keep her as a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and no one can do anything for her. Even the regular, even the other Protestants try to do things for this mm-hmm. poor slave woman, and they hide her away. Yeah, they're just terrible yeah. people. And the uh, the intense religiosity of her is fantastic. Yeah, because when you suffer, it drives you deeper, closer to God, or it can. Mm-hmm. And I did want to say, um, we're talking about all the intense stuff, of course. There are some lighter moments <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. and some moments that are just kind of peaceful and beautiful. But um, like when Father Vaillant, he, his, is it a horse or a mule that's just, you know, not very good and he <laughs> uh, stays with somebody who's very devout and who has two beautiful mules who are, yes. have never been apart and they're wonderfully trained and mm. and and the guy feels like oh, I'm going to make a huge sacrifice and give you one. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and Father Vaillant, they don't really say this, but you know that deep down he would like them both because you know the bishop could use the other one, <laughs> and he talks him into it. Yeah, um, giving mm. both of them. Says, oh no, I better not take one. I wouldn't want to separate them. You know, it would it would be great if somebody with a big heart did this. <laughs> yeah. The guy's like, oh, uh, yeah, take them both. Yeah, yeah, yes. that was fun. And they so used them to the end, right? And he sent them. Yeah, he sent them to Colorado. Yeah, they were they were like the best transportation. Mm-hmm. Love it. Well trained, so affectionate. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, all the things. And well, and then there's the story that I really love about the woman who has to testify to how old she is so that her daughter will be mm. able to have her proper inheritance from yes. mm-hmm. when the husband dies. And she's like <laughs> <laughs> And the whole story is just about getting her to admit that she's fifty or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead of forty three. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just, Oh no, well no one will believe it, you know, because <laughs> I look so young. <laughs> and the bishop's like, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, we do have to tell the truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, you can imagine a lot of joy mm-hmm. throughout this uh, difficult life, the, uh, tremendous life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, death comes for the archbishop. Yeah, and and Vaillant, he died in uh, Colorado, and then um, Latour went up to visit or to go to the funeral, Um, but I think he missed the service, right? If I remember correctly, and then um, but did get to see the body. Was it he who missed the service, or was it the other priest who was devoted to him who had been injured? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it doesn't really matter. Maybe I have that detail wrong, but I do know that he. He saw the body, right? He saw. I guess that was before, it. maybe before it was buried, you know, because it looked so different. Yeah, and and this book also mentioned um, two two stories that and uh, told them really um, are the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe mm-hmm. and uh, some of uh, Father Junipero Serra, and um, both super big for. That well, the United States as a whole, right? But also, mm-hmm. you know, that particular region. You know, Father Junipero uh, Serra was mostly in the California area, if I remember right. Um, yeah. But uh, both tremendous stories. Uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe is very dear to uh, a lot of us. So I thought that's. I think it's a great story. She told it well. Well, she did tell it well, and the other thing that is really clear is. 
the connection that the people have to mm-hmm. Our Lady of Guadalupe. And when this book was written, it was something like 1927. Mm-hmm. I think most of her reading audience in America wouldn't have known this story. Now it's much better known. Mm. We've got a lot bigger um, Hispanic communities all around, um, you know, Utah, of yep. course, Texas and everything. Mm-hmm. Sure. And in fact, our cathedral is Our Lady of Guadalupe Cathedral here. Oh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't think it was in 1927. Mm-hmm. That's a a popular devotion that has grown in strength. Hmm. I myself really love Our Lady yeah. of Guadalupe. Yeah, me too. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other story also it deals with, um, and it's not really giving a spoiler, I think, because it's so clear from the beginning, but it deals with uh, the Holy Family, hmm. but in a native setting. Yeah. Which is very understandable mm-hmm. to anybody who hears the story. Yeah. And knows what's going on. So it's, they're both beautiful and they both show God's love and devotion for every person. Mm-hmm. No matter where they're from or who they, who they are, what their uh, culture is. Right. Especially when you look at, you've got the French priests, you have the Spanish people, the mm-hmm. Americans, the native people. You have all these people all melded together because they just all, this is how people are. They just wander around and they wind up in the same places together. <laughs> yeah. And then the church is there to help them have their fuller lives and, you know, communicate with God. Yeah, that is an amazing part of the world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All, all those different groups that you mentioned all in one place. So one other thing that kind of talks about the connections of the church with all kinds of people is that um, Father Vaillant's sister was a nun. And in fact, I think she might have wound up being the mother superior wherever mm. she was. Mm-hmm. Um, let me find the right page. And they would make cassocks and things for the sanctuary and uh, vestments, I guess. And it says, Father Latour had used to feel a little ashamed that Joseph kept his sister and her nuns so busy making cassocks and vestments for him. But the last time he was in France, he came to see this all in another light. While he was visiting Mother Philomena's convent, one of the younger sisters had confided to him what an inspiration it was to them living in retirement to work for the faraway missions. She also told him how precious to them were Father Vaillant's long letters, letters in which he told his sister of the country, the Indians, the pious Mexican women, the Spanish martyrs of old. These letters, she said, Mother Philomene read aloud in the evening. The nun took Father Latour to a window that jutted out and looked up the narrow street to where the wall turned at an angle, cutting off further view. Look, she said. After the mother has read us one of those letters from her brother, I come and stand in this alcove and look up our little street with its one lamp, and just beyond the turn there is New Mexico. All that he has written us of those red deserts and blue mountains, the great plains and the herds of bison and the canyons more profound than our deepest mountain gorges, I can feel that I am there. My heart beats faster, and it seems but a moment that until the retiring bell cut short my dreams. The bishop went away, believing that it was good for these sisters to work for Father Joseph. Hmm. 
And so it's Mm -hmm. the universal church. It's mm-hmm. how us serving each other helps us all grow deeper, mm-hmm. closer together, and um, deeper in faith. Yes. And it's that sense of universal brotherhood and mm. universal working for the kingdom. I mean, it's yeah. It's just in that one little story, you can see how it enriched those nuns' lives to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's that's a theme for this whole book, isn't it? You know, because you've got that whole theme with uh, the bishop and uh, Father Joseph. Yes. You know, so their friendship and their toiling together uh, for the same purpose. Um, Yes. Beautiful stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess this may be rather rambling conversation, but you can just take it along with the little rambling episodes (laughs) or vignettes. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think this is, this is good. Yeah. Um, It all comes together. I I love the idea of that, you know, string of pearls, you know, it's um, definitely that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a terrific, terrific book. So another one that I'm thrilled to have read and is uh, a permanent part of something, you know, I, I, I'm going to reread this one, no doubt. Um, you know, sometime because it's, uh, it's in my head. It's, it's really, really terrific. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those, there are are a few books that when I get done with them, it's hard for me to go on to something else because Mm. the images and the words, the way it's written, nothing can compare. Mm. I have to let it kind of fade a little bit before I can pick up something else. And this is one of those for me. This was my excuse to buy it. (laughs) <laughs> I've always yeah, read it I'm, from the library I was thinking before. the same thing. It's like, I think I kind of need this one. So uh, For the pool yeah. room. For the pool room, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you very, very oh, much. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm so glad terrific. you liked it. So very good. Um, yeah, and so unexpected. I, you know, I, I, I genuinely was surprised that it wasn't a murder <laughs> mystery. And it, it was just in my head that way. I don't know why, but it, I, I feel like I confused Willa Cather with P.D. James. Um, well, it makes sense because the title <laughs> does read that way, and it never occurred to me to think of it that way. I think because I always knew the sort of book that Willa Cather wrote uh, before I picked this sure up. Be, I've yeah. not read, and I've never yeah. read her, so this is my first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've not read any of her other books, um, mm. just this one. But okay. I just kind of knew she wrote O Pioneers and... That's my Antonia, and uh, maybe the kids had had to read her for school, and they would complain about, you know, whatever book they were reading of hers. And um, mm. so I kind of knew. Yeah. Um, so I was more prepared for it, maybe. Right, right. Well, very good. But, yeah, it was, it was completely new for me, and uh, as soon as I knew what was happening, I settled in, and uh, it was just so good. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so I'm very so glad. good. Yeah, really great. Yes. Good. So, thumbs way up. Anything else you'd like to say about it before we close? No, that's it for me. I mean, what about uh, you? No, that's that's it. I think we hit what what I felt like were the most moving pieces, um, the, the, the pieces that I'll remember it for. And I, I think the thing that I'll remember most is this friendship between the two. And um, that moving sacrifice when Latour sent Vaillant to, to Colorado, that was really so very well done and after everything mm-hmm. they had been through up to that point um and then the uh the end of the book where you know they're apart um still toiling for the same reasons but apart and um 
you know, him traveling to his funeral or just see him after he's passed Mm -hmm. away and then his final days. Um, terrific. You know, that, that's what I'm going to remember though. Yeah. There, for me, it's their friendship and also the New Mexico landscape. Mm. The landscape I think is also a character in the book. Yeah. Um, I think so too. Yeah. It's described so thoroughly and Mm. the way the people interact with it. Um, yeah. Dwell amid, dwell amidst it, I guess <laughs> I would say, really. Yeah, and we're both right on the edge of that world, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, you in Texas and me in Utah, this is really the yeah. land in between us. <laughs> and I still yeah. remember we were driving Rose out to California with the U-Haul behind us, and we got to the New Mexico border, and it was sunset, and Tom kind of slowed down, and I th- you have to go over whatever the border is, and um, mm-hmm. he said, look, look. And I looked and I said, it's so different. He goes, I know. It's like they drew this line right where the countryside got really different. (laughs) Mm. And there's nothing like New Mexico. It's just, it's just so amazing. That's cool. I think. Yeah. I spent, uh, I lived in Tucson for six years. Okay. So I've been, you know, to that desert, but I don't believe that I've ever been to New Mexico. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe you would go and say, oh, you're wrong. That's no, more the same I totally over there. Wouldn't. I have been to uh, um, southern Utah, so I've been close to that. But I, I do want to visit Santa Fe. And I do love the food. So, you know, I, oh, I'll, yeah. be, I'll be in there immediately. <laughs> okay. All right. I grew a real taste for that in Tucson. In fact, there's mm-hmm. still a couple of places that I miss after all these years. Sanchez oh. Burrito Company is magnificent. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm going through. I'm going to remember that. That's right. Yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah. A steak <laughs> fajita burrito Sanchez style with no sour cream is the pinnacle of what you order. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I write, I got to write this down. Oh, and I have to go on a pilgrimage now. <laughs> That's right. Uh, too fun. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have to tell my husband it's for some other reason because, you know, (laughs) Tex-Mex is king. That's right. That's right. We'll make an exception. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Very good. All right. So what do we have coming up now? Let's see. We have a movie. Into the past, but a very different past. Yes. Uh, Master and Commander. Mm -hmm. Love it. That's great. That's great. And you've seen that, I assume. Yes, and uh, it's going to be fantastic. Um, oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. it's going to be fun. And I have actually, not read the book. Have you read the book as well? I've read, I think, 15 of the 21 books. My gosh, so they must be good. They are, but, mm-hmm. you know, the reason I got sucked into them is I love this one narrator, Patrick Tull. Mm-hmm. He is now dead, but he read all of those books. Oh, okay. And uh, you kind of have to get used to his narration style a little bit, but and people either love it or hate it, but I love it. Mm. Love it. So Great. Um, mm-hmm. I like his audiobooks so much. So he I listened to fifteen of them, like I said. So <laughs> nice. That is fantastic. Really love it. That's great. But, and I will say, and we'll say this again, um, uh, speaking of the theme of friendship. That's what I was interested in when I chose this movie. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Very good. I yeah. will pay attention to that. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> well, thanks very much. Oh, and, so uh, glad you liked it. Yep. And thanks for listening, everyone. Yes, thank you. Now, <laughs> go read it and mm-hmm. have a Sanchez 
company burrito or as close as you can get. You might have to make it. your own. I wonder if that place even live. still is open. That would be so fun. <laughs> well, if it is, you have to put a link. That's right. Yeah. I will. Okay. Sounds okay. great. Take care, everybody. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. See you soon. Talk to you soon, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye.